Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening was ordained in 1996 when he finished his Master of Arts degree at the Angelicum in Rome. He currently serves as the Episcopal Vicar of Clergy. Uh, most importantly, Father Scalia is a member of the Institute's Board of Advisors and has given numerous extremely popular lectures for us. We're so pleased to be able to welcome back such a wonderful priest and great friend of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Scalia. Thank you, Andy. And well, let's uh, begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Fathers, we give ourselves to consider the life of your Son, St. Maximilian Kolbe. We ask the grace of your Holy Spirit that you enlighten our minds to the truths that he teaches us, that you fire our hearts by the example of his generous love and that through, through the intercession of Mary Immaculate, you grant us your protection and guidance always. And turning to her, asking her intercession, we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Say Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think we're all familiar with St. Maximilian's Colby's story uh, from Auschwitz, uh, the, the account of uh, his death. Uh, but what I'd like to do this evening is consider his life more broadly, because a martyr doesn't become that just on the spot. It is a lifetime sort of building up to that moment of ultimate sacrifice. We don't have martyrs who live a dissolute life and then all of a sudden at the crucial moment are able to die for Christ. It's, it's rather that all along they have been dying to themselves and embodying the life of Christ more and more. And it's only at martyrdom that that process sort of reaches its, its culmination. And so this evening, I'll speak first about his life, uh, kind of in, in broad outlines. Uh, and, and then uh, I'll reflect on the meaning of it, uh, of his life, and uh, particularly of his death uh, for us now. And, I, and I'll conclude with um, some reflections about uh, his Mariology, his teaching on the Virgin Mary, uh, because, well, he wouldn't want a talk on him to end about him. but to be about Our Lady. So, uh, he, he's born in 1894, dies in 1941. Just think about those years. The, this, the, these years include some of the most turbulent, and the most turbulent, really, in, in the history of Europe, and perhaps the history of the world. When he's born, Poland 
does not exist as an independent nation. It's, it's part of the Russian Empire. Uh, but still, there's a, a deep Polish identity in that area, and he really imbues that. And he, so that's one thing to, to keep in mind about him. In fact, apparently it was one of the, one of the objections that the um, devil's advocate brought forward um, during the, the process of canonization. You know, he's, he's the person who's, whose job is to poke holes in the argument for canonization. It's probably a terrible job, I think, you know, like <laughs> making enemies with all the saints, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of, one of the, the, the things brought up was that, you know, how much of, of his courage was really for the gospel and how much of it was, was for Poland. Yeah, it's actually a, a fair a, objection, but I think the, the evidence, you know, points to St. Maximilian Kolbe as a man, you know, more Christian than Polish. But still, there was that, that great identity with his, with, his, um, with his nation, which at that time didn't even exist. Poland's only formed after World War I, at the end of World War I, and even then, uh, if you're familiar with it, of course, part of Poland cuts Germany in half. <laughs> this is not going to end well, right, as, as we know. Right, so, there, so there's you know, a part of Germany on either side of the north part of Poland. And so it already indicates kind of the, the struggle and the suffering that, that will, will come. One of the most formative moments in his life was a vision that he had when he was 12 years old. And one account of it uh, puts it this way. So this is 1906. That night, I asked the mother of God what was to become of me. And apparently, um, before this vision, he wasn't a very good kid. And so maybe his asking her what was to become of him was not like a pious question, but kind of maybe one out of fear, right? <laughs> then she came to me holding two crowns, one white, the other red. She asked me if I was willing to accept either of these crowns. The white one meant that I should persevere in purity, and the red, that I should become a martyr. I said that I would accept them both. There already we have a sense of the man that we're dealing with, uh, this incredible generosity, this magnanimity. Uh, there's an a, account, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but account of uh, a resolutions that he wrote the night before he was ordained. And uh, the first one was, I want to be a saint and a great saint. That wasn't mine, that was, <laughs> I don't want to blow it too much, right? <laughs> But he, he just has this, this, great, this, this greatness of soul, this magnanimity uh, about him that we get, get a sense of it really when he, he's very young. So he enters the, uh, the Franciscans, uh, the conventional uh, Fran Franciscans, at a pretty young age and takes vows in 1914, right? Of course, right, right as World War I is beginning. So, so his entire life is coterminous with, with all of these, these terrible things going on in Europe and especially uh, in his country. Uh, and then at, at the end of his, sort of his minor studies, he goes, he goes to Rome uh, to study for the priesthood, and he studies the Gregorian University there, and uh, having studied in Rome, it was a great blessing to be able to go and kind of be at the places where St. Maximilian Kolbe had been, and go to the place where he had said his first mass. And while he's still in the seminary, he founds the Knights of the Immaculate, the Militia, Militia Immaculate, uh, which is kind of a movement, and it's still around today. Uh, it's not another religious order, but it was is a movement of evangelization in honor of uh, Our Lady, the Immaculate. 
It's a devotional group, but it was also much, much more than that, as, as we will see. He arrives in Rome for studies in 1914. He's ordained a priest in 1918, right, right as World War I is, is concluding, and his nation now actually exists. And so he returns to Poland, and you know, throughout this time, he's not in good health. And this is something that's kind of interesting to keep in mind, because the accounts of him are of a very strong man uh, and manly. I mean, even the Nazis kind of sort of acknowledge that about him. But he, actually, he was pretty sickly. And his superiors had to send him away peri periodically so that he could just regain his health. And even though he, he just had this constant uh, illness, he had this incredible capacity for work and, and was doing great things and a lot of things. In 1922, he founds the magazine, uh, The Militia of the Immaculate, or uh, the, the, the Night of the Immaculate. It's the, the, the name of this magazine he founds, or, or newspaper. Uh, it's a periodical, which might not seem uh, to be a big deal to us. But think, think of it, if, if I say he, he started a tabloid, then you kind of get the sense of how it came across and what his superiors kind of thought, like, well, you, you, you want to do what? Like, this wasn't the most noble form of proclaiming the gospel, at, or so it was, it was thought at the time. Uh, but anyway, he wants to go ahead and do this, and uh, you know, God bless his superiors. You know, here, here's a, a young priest who's not in good health, who has this devotion to the Virgin Mary, which, which is very kind of off-putting because it's so simple. And now he wants to start a newspaper, a tabloid. And they give him permission. <laughs> so God bless, God bless them for that. And so this goes on for a while, and then eventually uh, he goes to found uh, a monastery, uh, another monastery for, for the uh, Franciscans uh, in Nipokalanosh. No, I don't know. It's a Polish name. It's just too many consonants, not enough vowels for an Italian. Okay. <laughs> and it's also called the City of the Immaculate. And so this land, this enormous amount of land is given to him some, by some nobleman. And this is the kind of man he is. There's this simplicity about him. There's an innocence about him, right? Remember the white crown, right, for purity? This innocence, this simplicity about him. And so this nobleman just gives him this land. And so he, he establishes this monastery there. And uh, by, by the time uh, World War II breaks out, it is the largest monastery in the world, with over 700 friars there. And they're cranking out, uh, I think, three different publications at that point. Uh, and they have a, a fire department there, too, for, you know, one of the area or something. I mean, it's just this incredible thing that he establishes. Uh, and then, several years later, he, he takes a break, and, and so throughout the uh, first half of the 30s, he's traveling to the Far East and he establishes another monastery in Nagasaki. And uh, so I, I'm sure some of you have seen the, the, the pictures of him when he, you know, he's got the really long beard. Uh, it's a great, those are just great pictures. And the reason he grew that is because in that culture that was a sign of wisdom, right? And so he, he, he did that to sort of well, kind of enculturate, right? And, and to be able to communicate in, in just a very simple way. And so he establishes a monastery there as well. And keep in mind, he's not in good health this, this whole time. Uh, and he's, he's going back and forth from Japan uh, to Poland. Even he, was, he, he founds a place in India that didn't, didn't persevere. But, and when Nagasaki is bombed, 
that, that monastery really is, is, is left, you know, in effect, standing. Some say there, there are, you know, uh, geographical explanations for it, but I think there might be other explanations as well. In 1932, the monastery in Poland in the city of the Immaculate begins the publication of a daily newspaper. Uh, so, and this is in 1932. He's not even there. And, and this is another thing that, that we realize about the man is that, I mean, what kind of man must he have been for so many other men, hundreds, to follow him in what a lot of people thought were foolish ventures? But the inspiration he gives them is such that while he's in Japan establishing a new foundation, they say, hey, well, let's start a daily newspaper. And so uh, it had a circulation of 137,000 issues, which, I mean, that's pretty good, right? <laughs> I mean, most, I think, publishers today would kill for that. But. And then, uh, so he returns in the mid-30s, and we, we all know where this is heading, of course, okay? So he, he gets back in the mid-30s, and everybody's watching what Hitler's doing. And in, 19, uh, in 1938, he starts a radio station. This is a man who is not trimming his sails. Okay, he is not looking at what's happening in Germany and in the annexation of, of different areas by Hitler. He's not looking at that and saying, well, maybe we should, you know, scale back on things. Doesn't look good. <laughs> He's full speed ahead. Uh, founds a radio station in 1938. And then, of course, 1939. And so the Nazi invasion and occupation uh, of Poland in 19, uh, the fall of 1939. He was arrested uh, almost immediately. The Nazis were, I mean, they were no dummies. They knew who their opponents were, and they, they knew that th this man uh, was a threat to them. Any man that could get that many people to follow him, and that, any man who could, could accomplish what he had accomplished was a threat to them. So they arrested him, but he was released on December 8th, <laughs> 1939. Throughout his life, and I'll get to this later as well, throughout his life, he had a devotion to Mary specifically under the title the Immaculate Conception as the title of, his, of, of the movement, the Militia of the Immaculate, the Knight of the Immaculate. Uh, he was devoted to her under that particular title. So it's so fitting that he was released by the Nazis on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, more than human wisdom needed to, to explain that. And so for the next year and a half, uh, he's at the city of Mary and uh, with the other friars, as many as were allowed to remain there. And it became uh, a place for, the re for refugees uh, from the war uh, of all kinds. I mean, uh, Jew Jewish refugees and just people who had been turned out of their homes and whoever else. And it, it, so it became a place uh, of charitable works and just welcoming people in who needed assistance. So you can see, of course, this is this is not going to go well with the Nazis. They, they, they don't want charitable assistance. They don't want people uh, to be helped, especially since they were sheltering Jews. Uh, one thing he did, he got one last issue of his book, or his, his, his publication, The Night of the Immaculate. He, he got one last um, issue off, and, and he pleaded with uh, the Nazi commander you know, overseeing this. He pleaded with them uh, to be allowed to do it. And he said, you know, it's come on. It's just a devotional thing. <laughs> you know, this is just, you know, religious stuff that, that we want to, and, you know, there's nothing political about it, which was true. You know, we're not taking sides politically. Uh, and so the Nazi relented 
And um, in one of the articles in the final issue, it's called The Truth. <laughs> and it begins, although not everyone loves the truth, only the truth can be the basis of enduring happiness. And then he talks about the truth is one, right? Oneness. The truth is also powerful. <laughs> and then he talks about the truth in religion. And thus, if it is true that God exists, then the unbelievers are in error who assert that he does not exist. Moreover, if it is true that Jesus Christ is risen, that it is also true, as he taught, that he is God incarnate. And then towards the end of it, he said, the acknowledgement of the truth. Nobody can change the truth. One can only search for the truth, find it, recognize it, conform one's life to it, and walk on the road of truth in every question, above all in those that regard the ultimate end of one's life in connection with God, that is, that regard religious questions. You can tell that the commander regretted ever giving permission for this, right? It concludes, there is no one to be found in the world that does not search for happiness. Indeed, in all of our actions, happiness presents itself to us in one form or another as the end toward which we naturally tend. However, a happiness which is not built on the foundation of truth cannot endure, because everything else is a lie. The truth can be and is the only unshakable foundation of happiness for individuals and for all humanity. That's his like last salvo. And it's not political, is it? <laughs> Strictly speaking, no. But of course, it has incredibly powerful political implications. And that was it. The Nazis shut it down after that. There, there was no more, because they saw exactly where that was leading. And they, they, they knew exactly who he was targeting by saying that. And what you find in his writings is that he is just, he is steeped so deeply in Catholic theology. It's just, I mean, he really is a theologian. I think that's something we, we neglect uh, to appreciate about him, because we know him as a, uh, as a martyr, we know him as an evangelist, but he was a theologian. And, and, and just that last description about happiness, it's just, it's, it, that is part and parcel of, of our faith, and from him it just flows out, you know, it just flows from his pen, that, that is the truth. On February 17th, 1941, he was arrested. And, uh, you know, one of the things he would say when the friars had to be disbanded because the Nazis were shutting them down. He would say to them as they left, forget not love. Do not forget love. That was his, his final words to, to the friars as, as they departed. And so here come the Nazis uh, for him. And of course, people encouraged him to flee, uh, but he did not. He remained where he was. So he's arrested uh, February 17th, 1941. Uh, he's placed in uh, one camp at first, and then on May 28th is transferred to Auschwitz. And he actually has a, f a relatively brief time in Auschwitz, but the time that he was there made a tremendous impact. I mean, you can find testimonies of the people who were with him at Auschwitz uh, and who saw his ministry, how he would go, like, in the middle of the night in the barracks from, you know, bed to bed saying, you know, are you a Catholic? Is there anything I can do for you? and how he, people would, would, would crawl and sneak over to him uh, to go to confession, and how he would give his meager portions to whoever else was in need. It was a relatively short time he was there, but it made a great impact on many people. Even before his death, even before that heroic death, he had already impressed them by his Christian charity, by his ability to go without, 
by that death that he was already dying to himself so that others could live. And then in July 1941, one prisoner escaped. Actually, didn't make it. The prisoner's dead body was found later. But before that had happened, uh, the Nazis, and this was the policy, if for every one that escaped, 10 would be executed. And not just executed, but really tortured and then put to death. And so the men line up and they're all standing out in the hot sun in uh, you know, the end of July or middle of July and they have to stand there for hours. And then the Nazis go to select 10 men to replace or to, to suffer on behalf of the one that escaped. And as is well known, they choose one man and he just collapses and he starts begging for his life and explaining that he has a wife and children and pleading with the Nazis for his life. And St. Maximilian Kolbe steps forward. And apparently, he, he wasn't right next to him, but he had to break rank and step forward. This is something that just wasn't done. It was terrifying to do it. But he comes forward to them, and depending on the accounts, one account is that the Nazi says, who are you? Uh, another account says that he stepped forward and, and, and said, and these aren't, don't conflict, he says, I am a Catholic priest from Poland. I would like to take his place because he has a wife and children. All of the accounts have this in common. He identifies himself as a Catholic priest. He doesn't just say, uh, I want to take his place, but either he volunteers it or responds when, he, when he's asked, I am a Catholic priest. And for us priests, that is a reminder, of course, that uh, every priest is also to be a victim. I am a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, that is simply, that's how he, he, he identifies himself. The movie of Gods and Men has a great, there's a great scene in that movie. It's about uh, the monks in uh, northern Africa who were martyred, who were, were executed by, by uh, Muslim fundamentalists. And uh, there's a scene, and they know it's coming, right? They know they're in danger, but they've chosen to stay there in this Muslim nation as it's becoming radicalized. And there's a scene in which one of the younger monks is speaking to the abbot, and he says, I don't want to lose my life. And the abbot says, you already gave your life. And I, I think if it's not expressed in those words by Maximilian Kolbe, it, it certainly is in his actions and stepping forward and identifying himself as a priest. Because if I am a priest, that it's fit, then it's fitting that I also be a victim, as Christ the high priest was. And so the manner of death that they were to die, uh, Maximilian, Colby, and the other nine, was to be placed in a tiny cell and clo basically close, closed up in there uh, until they, they died. And when this was done, typically and understandably, the people would go crazy and they would start assaulting one another and they would start banging on the door, you know, begging to be let out uh, because who can endure that? And what was experienced with St. Maximilian Kolbe in there was something drastically different. Uh, he led them in prayers and in songs. Uh, one account, and this is from a man, an inmate at Auschwitz, who was forced to remove bodies from the starvation bunkers. And so, you know, every so often they would go, they would go by the bunker and they'd say, okay, well, who's died? Let's remove the, uh, the body. 
and he gave this testimony. He said, the 10 condemned to death went through terrible days. From the underground cell in which they were shut up there continually arose the echo of prayers and canticles. The man in charge of emptying the buckets of urine found them always empty. Thirst drove the prisoners to drink the contents. Since they had grown very weak, prayers were now only whispered. At every inspection, when almost all the others were now lying on the floor, Father Colby was seen kneeling or standing in the center as he looked cheerfully in the face of the SS men. Father Colby never asked for anything and did not complain. Rather, he encouraged the others saying that the fugitive might be found and then they would all be freed. One of the SS guards remarked, this priest is really a great man. We have never seen anyone like him. Two weeks passed this in this way. Meanwhile, one after another, they died until only Father Colby was left. This, the authorities felt, was too long. The cell was needed for new victims. So one day they brought in the head of the sick quarters, a German who gave Father Colby an injection of carbolic acid in the vein of his left arm. Father Colby, with a prayer on his lips, himself gave his arm to the executioner, extended it, offered himself. Unable to watch this, I left under the pretext of work to be done. Immediately after the SS men had, le had left, I returned to the cell where I found Father Colby seat, leaning in a sitting position against the back wall with his eyes open and his head drooping sideways. His face was calm and radiant. The martyrs always die peacefully. They always die even joyfully, often with a song on their lips or a prayer. He was no exception. Paul VI beatified him and uh, described him as the martyr for charity, which was kind of trying to split the difference because a controversy arose. Was he a martyr? Uh, traditionally in the church, a martyr is one who dies, uh, in the technical phrase, in odium fidei, out of hatred for the faith. In other words, you weren't just killed because people didn't like you, but because they didn't like the faith that you held. And could it be argued that Maximilian Kolbe died out of hatred for the faith? Paul VI did not go that far. And apparently it was a question mark until the day of the canonization, 1982, when they processed out for the mass and the Pope was wearing red, at which point they knew he's being canonized as a martyr. It was, Paul, it was John Paul II's way of, of, of really extending the, a teaching uh, of Vatican II, a line that he probably wrote, that at the incarnation, Christ has united himself in a certain way with, with, with every man, with every person. And so that, that, that brutality of the Nazis and that willingness to die in the place of the other, uh, that Maximilian Kolbe uh, manifested, that he, he really was taking the place of Christ, in a sense. And, and in that sense also was dying because of his faith. And so if it may not have been the intention of the Nazis to kill him out of hatred for the faith, it certainly was his intention to give himself because of the faith and because God uh, had united himself with every person uh, and, and every one of the millions that the Nazis exterminated. And so what does this mean for us? Uh, and of course he died August 14th. And so always 
um, in union with Our Lady, right? And, but sort of <laughs> courteously giving way to Our Lady, right? <laughs> uh, dying before her feast. And so as we approach that feast of the, of the Assumption, and we also approach his feast, let's, let's consider what he means for us today. First of all, that generosity, that generosity of spirit that we, that we hear when he was just a boy. The white one meant that I should pers persevere in purity, and the red that I should become a martyr. I said that I would accept them both. You hear an echo of St. Therese in this, right? St. Therese's great line, you know, I want it all. <laughs> I want all. I choose all. And, and so there's this greatness of soul about him, this generosity, and something that we should ask for and strive for, uh, not to have a meager response to the Lord, not to have a stingy response to him, but, but to try to give more. And another aspect of this vision that's very important for our times, it seems to me, is the unity of purity and martyrdom. The unity of purity and witness. So the purity that is represented there, yes, it is uh, sexual purity, but it, also, it is also that broader meaning of purity, a pure heart, a heart that is whole and entire, and a purity of life in the broadest sense. And it is that purity of life that enables him to become a martyr. He does not have a divided heart, and so he's able to give it whole and entire. In this regard, he's sort of a male counterpart of the virgin martyrs that, that we venerate, uh, especially those of the ancient church. Uh, the virgin martyrs who are martyrs precisely because they are virgins, because they would not surrender their virginity, their purity, to the, the pagan to whom they've been betrothed or to those who are assaulting them or whatever else. Because of that defense of their purity, they gave witness to Christ. In a culture that is so beset by impurity, we have to be increasingly aware of how the purity of life gives witness to Christ. He is the one who is all pure. Our, Our Lady is all pure. When we strive for that purity of life, when we have nothing to do with the impurity of this world uh, and of our culture, it makes us look odd, but it also becomes an occasion to witness. And remember, you know, the, the, the impression that this made on the guards when they came into the bunker and they saw Maximilian Colby there, and he looked so innocent and pure. Uh, th there's one account of the guards telling him to look away because they couldn't bear the purity of his look at them. So the unity of these two strikes me as very important for our times. Another aspect from his life that, that's important for us, especially in, um, you know, we hear so much talk about the new evangelization. Well, <laughs> I don't think he ever used the phrase, but he was already doing it, right? You know, newspapers, radios, traveling all over the place. He combines in his evangelization efforts an intriguing un unity of, of simplicity and technology. Simplicity, <laughs> he had this, this childlike trust in Our Lady, oh, she'll just take care of it. And simplicity also in speaking to anyone about Mary. And so there are accounts of him being like, in, you, know, in a, you know, on a train and you're, you know, in, in, the, in the car on the train and he's seated with strangers, but he just starts talking and talking about it, Our Lady and giving them miraculous medals and everything like that. And it doesn't matter if they're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, or atheist, whatever. He's willing to talk to anyone. There's this simplicity, again, that purity 
that enables him to give witness. Sometimes we're reluctant to do that uh, because we lack that simplicity. We lack that purity of heart. So here's something maybe to ask him for uh, as we approach his feast. Is that, that purity of heart, that simplicity, that childlike attitude by which we are willing to speak to people about the faith and about Our Lady. And we're not going to wonder, well, what would they think of me or things like that. Won't be self-conscious. This, this is one of the marks of, of children, right? They're not self-conscious, which is why they say things you know, when they shouldn't. Because <laughs> they're not self-conscious. As we grow, we become self-conscious. But we see in him this simplicity, the simplicity of a child. He's willing to speak to anyone about the faith. At the same time, he's also willing to take up any means uh, that he can in order to promote the faith. A tabloid, uh, the radio, uh, what, whatever else it is. I mean, what would he have done with the technology at, at, at his disposal today, right? He, he wanted to, to seize whatever means he could uh, to promote the gospel. And you know, his publications were, I mean, they, they were devotional, but I mean, they were wildly popular. And, and some of the most widely distributed and widely read in, in Poland at the time. And it's because he was willing to take all of that on. In 1937, this is a report that uh, he, he gave to Pius XI, which is, I think, a kind of another childlike uh, thing to do, because I'm not sure Pius XI was like, asking for, for the report. 1937, he had other things on his mind, right? But he says, he, the report is as follows. Um, the Marian Militia today numbers nearly a million members. The National Center of the Militia first established at Krakow, then at Grodno, was in 1927 moved to a new monastery near Warsaw, that's the city of the Immaculate. There are now 600 religious there and 27 seminarians. It would keep increasing. This monastery publishes the monthly magazine of the movement intended for adults, the Night of the Immaculata. Circulation, 780,000. A second magazine for young people, The Little Night, circulation 180,000. A daily, The Little Journal, circulation 130,000. Imagine you're the Pope and you're facing all of this terrible stuff in the world. You get something like, yeah, that's kind of nice, right? <laughs> this is some good news. But that is you know, this combination of this, this simplicity and the, the, the use of the modern means for evangelization. One of the things we, we, we learn from him is true freedom. What makes for true freedom and true peace? I am a Roman Catholic priest, he says. He steps forward freely. And what the Nazis encounter in him is not someone who is there against his will. I mean, obviously he is in the sense that he was arrested. But trusting in the providence of our Lord, he is now giving himself freely to where he is and gives himself freely to where he is, even when he's in the bunker. Doesn't rebel against this, this providence of God, but trusts in it, and because of that trust in the providence of God, really re emerges as a free man. Freedom is what our world, especially our culture, wants. But we think that freedom means controlling everything. True freedom is found in trusting in God's providence. True freedom is responding freely to God's will where we find ourselves and not pushing against it, not thinking that our life is happening somewhere else, but being present where we are, responding to God's providence wherever we find ourselves. There's a certain peacefulness about, uh, a tremendous peacefulness about him, but I think 
uh, I mentioned to a priest friend of mine that uh, I, you know, was preparing th this this talk, and and his immediate observation was was that uh, what intrigued him about Maximilian Kolbe was that all of his efforts were crushed. He built up this enormous monastery, uh, an incredible publishing network, uh, another monastery, you know, across the globe. And the Nazis came in and then, well, we bombed the other town. Um, and it was all gone. <laughs> all gone. But he never would have thought that his labor was wasted. Uh, his witness continues. And, you know, that's a very good thing. A lot of times we can, can get discouraged, perhaps even with our prayers, thinking, was, was that wasted? Was this work that I was engaged in wasted? Uh, but whatever we do with a sincere heart for the glory of God, for, uh, for the salvation of souls, is never wasted, even if in human terms, in worldly terms, it looks like it is, it, uh, it is wasted or it's been crushed. So let me conclude by speaking a little bit about his devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. One of the things that he came back to throughout his life, and it's throughout his, his, his writings, is contemplating Mary's title, the Immaculate Conception, and asking, you know, what is the Immaculate Conception? And then asking her, who are you, Immaculate Conception? This is a very profound uh, Mariology that he has, and, and sort of the pinnacle of it is, this is amazing, written hours before he was arrested on February 17th, 1941, his last writings on Our Lady. One thing he asks is, uh, you know, what does it mean that Mary says, I am the Immaculate Conception to Bernadette at Lourdes? You know, Bernadette didn't understand it. She's like, I she, she, had to, she had to repeat it over and over again because she didn't know what it meant. And she, you know, she went and said it to the priest, and the priest you know, nearly fell over, um, uh, shocked because of, because of that. But Our Lady did not say, I am immaculately conceived, which had been defined infallibly four years before. This is why Mary doesn't appear to theologians, right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, if she had appeared to a theologian and said, I am the Immaculate Conception, he would have said, actually, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> let me tell you what you are. Um, but it, it is a, a, a slight but a significant difference. She doesn't say, I am immaculately conceived, which was what Pius IX had defined infallibly. She said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Uh, now, one way of understanding this is that she is what God makes her to be, and it's true for all of us, right? She's defined by, by his grace, by what he has done for her, uh, and that should be true for all of us. February 17th, 1941, he writes, who are you then, O Immaculate Conception? And, and then he goes on to speak of the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? The flowering of the love of the Father and the Son. If the fruit of created love is a created conception, then the fruit of divine love, that prototype of all created love, is necessarily a divine conception. The Holy Spirit is therefore the uncreated eternal conception, the prototype of all the conceptions that multiply life throughout the whole universe. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is the conception that springs from their love. The Spirit is then this thrice holy conception, 
this infinite, holy, immaculate conception. And then later, he, um, in the same, same document, he writes, this eternal, immaculate conception, which is the Holy Spirit, produces in an immaculate manner divine life itself in the womb or depths of Mary's soul, making her the immaculate conception, the human immaculate conception. And so he describes the Holy Spirit as the uncreated immaculate conception. And it's just good, actually, Trinitarian theology. It's, it's, it's a good way of describing the Holy Spirit. And, but he does so in order to connect the Holy Spirit and Our Lady. And same document from February 17, 1941, he, he then makes this connection by speaking of Mary, of the spousal relationship between Our Lady and the Holy Spirit. If among human beings the wife takes the name of her husband because she belongs to him, is one with him, becomes equal to him, and is with him the source of new life, with how much greater reason should the name of the Holy Spirit, who is the divine immaculate conception, be used as the name of her in whom he lives as uncreated love, the principle of life in the whole supernatural order of grace? And then he, he goes on speaking about this union. He says, you know, um, and this is earlier in his life, he writes, the Holy Spirit has made Mary his own spouse. And that this is uh, deep in our theology. This is a spousal relationship. Our, our Lady is called the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Um, so perfect is she, so closely bound to the Holy Spirit that we can call her his spouse. The union between the Immaculata and the Holy Spirit is so inexpressible, yet so perfect, that the Holy Spirit acts only by the most blessed virgin, his spouse. While their union is not the same order as the hypostatic union, linking the human and the divine natures of Christ, it remains true to say that Mary's action is the very action of the Holy Spirit. For Mary, as the spouse of the Holy Spirit, is raised to such a height of perfection above all other creatures that she accomplishes in everything the will of the Holy Spirit who dwelt in her from the first instant of her conception. And then, perhaps most shockingly, she is, so to speak, the personification of the Holy Spirit, or as he says in another place, she is in a certain sense the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, so to speak, and in a certain sense. He's a good theologian, right? <laughs> uh, he, he, he understands that he's proposing something radically new. A parishioner told me this, gosh, almost you know, 20 years ago. He was very involved in the charismatic movement, and he made the observation that Protestant charismatics speak of the Holy Spirit in the same way that Catholics speak of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that always intrigued him, and it made me again think, think of this. This powerful bond, a union between Our Lady and the Holy Spirit. And Maximilian Kolbe really is, he's just drilling down on this truth that there, there is this oneness, and we shouldn't think that it disappears. She never ceases being the spouse of the Holy Spirit. This is the source of everything for him, is his devotion to the, to the Blessed Virgin Mary. This is what gives him confidence. This is what makes him so childlike. This is what maintains him uh, in his purity. This ultimately is what enables him to give his life as generously as he did. It's this incredible devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary as the Immaculate Conception. And as we see on the very, you know, the very day he was arrested, that he is still thinking about this and meditating on it. If you or I knew that the Nazis were coming to arrest us, you know, would we be doing high theology? 
Probably not, you know? <laughs> he knew, and still he's taking time to reflect on what is more important. You know, that must have been, I, I think, kind of insulting to the Nazis. Like, you weren't frightened of us coming? <laughs> no, I was thinking about Our Lady and the Holy Spirit. Why? <laughs> uh, that, that reveals to us the peacefulness uh, and the freedom that he has, and, and more importantly, it reveals to us the source, which is Our Lady, uh, the Immaculata. Let me close with, with this line that he wrote in 1936. If you wrote it in 1936, it applied then, it certainly still applies today. And as we prepare for his feast and hers, let's, uh, let's keep this in mind. Our era is the era of the Immaculata, or as others put it, the era of the Holy Spirit. The infernal serpent shows his head all over the world, but Mary will crush him and win decisive victories, even though he constantly seeks to bite her heel. Amen. God bless. Thank you. Okay, questions and answers. Who's first? Can you explain how Mary can be the spouse of St. Joseph and the spouse of the Holy Spirit? Yes, okay, good, thank you, thank you. Right, um, and, and obviously when we, when we use these phrases, they're more analogous than literal, right? And so did Mary and Joseph have uh, a marriage? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, it was a genuine, authentic marriage, and she was the, the spouse of Joseph, and Joseph is her most chaste spouse. But then when we think about things spiritually, uh, our, our Lady is espoused to the Spirit in a unique way. Now, every soul is espoused to the Spirit. Uh, the Catechism actually talks about this, about the, the nuptial character of baptism. I, I'm not, not, to, not to the Spirit, rather, um, I should clarify. Espoused to our Lord. We, we refer to our Lord as the bridegroom of my soul, right? And, and so now, does that mean you can't get married because he's the bride? No, of course. <laughs> our Lady is espoused to the Holy Spirit in a unique way. The whole reason for her marriage to Joseph is because he enables her to maintain that virginity. Uh, it, it is under his, his guardianship and uh, his patronage that she maintains that, that unique um, status and, um, and that in union with the Holy Spirit becomes uh, the mother of God while remaining a virgin. Um, and, and so we shouldn't think that this is, this is a marriage exactly the way we, we think of, of a natural marriage, okay? There's something analogous here. So th those two things do coexist, okay? I was wondering, besides St. Maximilian Kolbe, whose works were peaking in the 1930s, do you know what, if there was any connection there with him and St. Teresa Benedict of the Holy Cross and St. Faustina? to other great saints of that period in Poland? Yeah, that's a great question. If you just think about that time, you had John Paul II is studying for the priesthood. You had St. Faustina, and St. Teresa Benedicta, uh, uh, or Edith Stein, whose feast we just celebrated, she was martyred at Auschwitz, what, a couple years after Maximilian Kolbe. Um, I don't know that they had any contact and it would be kind of an interesting thing because um, she as, I mean, she was formidable, a formidable intellect. If you ever see pictures of her, she's, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be in her class, all right? <laughs> she just looks like a really, really formidable intellect. 
uh, but it, I don't know that, that they had any connections. So I, yeah, I don't know that. You've spoken about connection, you have the uh, devotion that St. Maximilian had with Our Lady. Would you tell us a little bit about what drew him to the Franciscans? Uh, that, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know, I don't have the answer to that. Um, I, I just didn't run across any, uh, you know, his brother entered as well, uh, one of his brothers. So that didn't come up in, in you know, in what I read, what, what, what the connection was. Uh, could have just been, I was, is often, you know, the case that he kind of maybe grew up at, a par at one of their parishes or just knew them. Uh, but I think the poverty that the Franciscans embody and is such a such a core part of their spirituality probably had a, a great great deal to do with that. One of the biographers has this great line. He says that um, Colby understood that poverty was was the way to be vulnerable to God's grace. <laughs> um, now, there's a whole lot of some things in there we don't like: poverty and vulnerability, right? <laughs> But that's, that's the purpose of poverty, is to, to get rid of things so that you can be more, more vulnerable to, to God's grace working in you. And so I, I would you know, say that that's, that's, prob that's probably, it is interesting that, that you know, the Franciscans you know, led the charge on the Immaculate Conception theologically, okay? Not the Dominicans, don't tell the Dominicans, they don't, <laughs> they get angry about that, so. So, following the line of inquiry uh, that you raised with regard to St. Maximilian's devil's advocate, he strikes me as having lived this classically and paradigmatically Polish life from start to finish with one glaring exception, and that is up and moving to Japan to found a monastery. Uh, is there anything you can say about his uh, motivation in that regard? Uh, you know, it's just a missionary zeal. Uh, and, and, and why it took him to Japan, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I, he just wanted to spread the gospel. It, and, and I really think it, it, is, it, it was that easy. And I think sort of intrigued by that opportunity um, and, then, and then going that way. You know, it's, it's, it's one of these things that I, <laughs> who knows? And, and not only Japan, but uh, also India. I mean, he spent some time in India and, and actually did establish something there. But, um, and so I don't think there's any rhyme or reason. It's just that he saw an opening and he wanted to spread the gospel and so he he you know he took it thank you father there's uh molly's writing in online here she's saying for someone who's interested in developing a devotion to saint maximilian colby is there a particular book that you might recommend for them to starting with several ah. <laughs> so uh maximilian colby uh no greater love by boniface hanley uh, that's a great one. A Man for Others by Patricia Treese, T-R-E-E-C-E. -E -E. Of course, they're gonna, these are going to be put on the website. <laughs> Forget Not Love, The Passion of Maximilian Colby by Andre Frossard, who also, uh, uh, he did a great um, sort of interview uh, book with um, John Paul II. And then uh, the one on his Mariology, um, is called Immaculate Conception and the Holy Spirit, the Marian Teachings of St. Maximilian Kolbe. It's a riveting title. By Father H.M. Monteau Bonami. I, I, I'm probably butchering that. Um, but if you just look up Immaculate Conception and the Holy Spirit, Maximilian Kolbe, you'll, you'll, you'll get to this. There are not that many books on that topic. Okay, this is, this is, the, this is the one. But those, those would all be good. And, you know, and look also... 
uh, I mean, you can find a lot of things online uh, regards his, some of his writings, and then also his, his prayers of consecration to Mary Immaculate, which, which I think are very important and, and powerful. Uh, and he, he's, he's very, very clear, very clear about, uh, the, about the battle, uh, about the battle with the devil. You know, he really began, the militia of the Immaculate, to oppose Freemasons. <laughs> that was sort of the original thing, because he's, he's, in, he's in Italy in the you know, uh, early uh, 20th century, and he, he sees this going on. And, and, um, but, but of course, it kind of expands that. But so, so it really is not just a devotional thing that, that we, we want to promote devotion to Mary, but it is you know, we want to oppose evil, and Mary has crushed the head of the, of the serpent. And so we're going to oppose evil under her banner. Thanks, Father. We'll end with a question here from Harold. Yeah, hi, Father. You know, you mentioned uh, magnanimity. Yes. And um, I, th I believe that's why you chose the name Maximilian. So could you speak a little bit more about magnanimity and how we can apply that virtue in our daily lives, especially, I mean, like in our own little ways? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Magnanimity, um, literally, magna anima means great soul. It's, it's, a, it's a greatness of soul. It's, it's sort of a spiritual generosity. It's a thing that prompts him to say, I'll, I'll take both crowns, thank you very much. It's, it, 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 you know, what prompts him to, to say, I want to be a saint and a great saint. It's funny because it can look contrary to, to Christian humility, right? <laughs> like, I want to be a saint and a great saint. Like, whoa. <laughs> well, who are you that should be that, right? But magnanimity and humility go together these two virtues. I mean, the virtues always hang together. And humility is a recognition of, of you know, one's, one's nothingness, really. But it also knows God's grace and God's generosity. And magnanimity, really, is kind of the response to God's generosity. Because God is generous, I'm going to dare great things. Uh, and, you, and you think of the great missionaries who, who just do, do, do these amazing things. Well, I mean, you know, Maximilian Kolbe going to Japan at a you know, time difficult to travel, and not, not just for geographical reasons, but for political and, uh, reasons as well. Or the North American martyrs, or you know, so many other missionaries. Um, there's just this confidence in God's grace, and that I, I'm going to dare these things. I'm going to dare great things. And God's going to be there. And even if, even if it fails, you know what? I'm, I'm still going to keep going. I think uh, for us, uh, th th this means, you know, uh, th the opposing vice is pusillanimity, which is just fun to say, right? <laughs> pusillanimity, a pusillanimous soul. Uh, it's just kind of the small, peevish, well, I don't really want to, oh, that seems difficult, or I'm not sure, oh, I might look odd if I do that. Um, that, that's, that's not the stuff of Christians, right? You know, praying for that, for that greater confidence in God's grace uh, so, that, so that we can dare great things. And the great things that we dare, you know, they're, they're not going to be the same as Maximilian Kolbe, and, and they, might, they might not seem to be that incredible to other people, but they might be big for us, right? And wherever we find ourselves stepping out a little more and trying, you know, to, to do something, something great. It also is something that I think opposes comfort. And uh, comfort is what we, I mean, gosh, our, our culture just, you know, it excels in promising us comfort, right? And we like that. And we want our religion to be comfortable, right? 
a friend of mine got an email from some, 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 someone who said, uh, well, I feel comfortable at your parish. <laughs> It was, it was a great, and it, it led to a great, great discussion because, you know, what's the answer to that? If it's yes, then you're probably not preaching the entirety of the gospel, right? Uh, if it's no, you're probably not preaching the entirety of the gospel. So, you know, he wrote a wonderful email back saying, saying well, gosh, you know, I, I hope that, it, I hope that you know, it, you, you will be comfortable, but I hope you won't be entirely comfortable. I hope that I will challenge you and make you uncomfortable. And magnanimity is, is not, it's not content with comfort. It, it's willing to endure discomfort and suffering uh, in order to, to do things for the gospel. Um, so there's just some thoughts on that. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you, Father. We really appreciate it. Uh, Father, would it be possible to end with a blessing from you? Yeah. Why don't we uh, stand and um, go to Our Lady uh, in preparation for uh, her feast, uh, conscious that we're doing that also under the, uh, the patronage of her, her faithful uh, and uh, generous Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do we come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy clemency hear and answer them. Amen. Mary Immaculate. St. Maximilian Colby. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.